Howdy folks, welcome to Camera Shake, where we bring you the insider scoop on all things photography and videography, giving you a unique opportunity to stay ahead of the curve. We've spent literally hundreds of hours interviewing some of the most renowned photographers of our time, giving you access to knowledge and expertise that's not available anywhere else. I'm your host, Kirsten Nutz, and today we have a truly special episode lineup for all of you portrait and wedding photographers out there with the absolute legend that is... Welcome to Camera Shake Podcast, episode 162. But hold on, before I tell you who our special guest is, let me just say that I'm massively proud to announce that Platypod have come on board as our brand new sponsor of the Camera Shake Podcast. I couldn't be more thrilled since I've been using Platypod products like the Platypod Extreme and the Platypod Elite for some time now, and it's made my life so much easier. For those of you who don't know, Platypod make the world's most compact tripods for photographers, filmmakers, and vloggers. Unlock limitless creativity and say goodbye to missed shots and restrictive rules with Platypod, where innovation never sleeps. But without further ado, let's give it up for today's special guest, the most influential wedding photographer of the 21st century, one of the top photographers in the world, the MacGyver of photography. Please welcome the true <laughs> legend that is none other than Mr. Jerry Gionis himself. Jerry, how are you? <laughs> good, man. With that introduction, I'm very good. It's all good. <laughs> Thank you, mate. Well... If um if I was so special, why am I like guess 162? That's what I'm trying to work out. I'm just... well, that is a very good question. I tell you, I tell you something. I tell you something. This is this is a, a totally true, and I've, I've said this many times um, on this podcast. But when when Nick and I first started, at, you know, in in the midst of the pandemic, um, it was it really you know making a podcast was just something that we did to structure our week because everything was shut down and everything, and. You know, we did the first episode together, just the two of us talking about photography and things. And we called it Done is Better Than Perfect because we had zero idea of how to make a podcast now the whole thing even worked. And um, and then I wrote a list. Um, and it was basically the, wouldn't it be cool if we had these people on the show list? So I thing, you know, and, and your name was totally on it. And it was very far up the top, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and it's one of I'm just giving you crap, man. I, I, I'm all good. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's totally true. And, you know, it's been the most remarkable thing on this journey, you know, has, uh, you know, for me, and I'm sure for our listeners as well, has been, you know, the really, uh, you know, on one hand, the caliber of guests that, that we've been able to get on the show. But the other thing is also, you know, the realization how open and, uh, you know, and accommodating the photography industry is nowadays. Because, some time ago, it used to be different. I think people used to guard their secrets a little bit more. Well, I think you're, I think you're probably just speaking to the wrong people. That's <laughs> <laughs> <It's> very true. <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, I, I think that if anyone accomplishes a lot, and, and I'm not saying accolades or anything like that, but if you've been in business for a long time and you truly love photography, you simply want that joy for a lot of other people. Now, yes, there are people who are... And I don't, I don't want to say selfish per se, quote unquote selfish. It means that they just focus on their own lives, their own businesses. They're not really involved in the community per se. So they're not used to that spirit of giving or they don't go to conventions or they don't, or they don't do any kind of online training or education or anything like that. Um, so at the end of the day, I think that, you know, things will come out in the wash. You know what I mean? Like as far as photographers are concerned, I've been teaching for so long. Um, I'm happy to share everything. I, I, I don't really hold back at all. And when anyone ever gives you any crap 
about anything. Like the, no one who does more than you will give you any crap. Think of it like that. In other words, um, you know, I, I run a successful business. I've been doing it for three decades. I, I, I'm very happy with my life and my wife and my my fur babies. Like, I don't get intimidated. You know what I mean? I I just run my race, and where that puts me is fine. If I can help people stand on my shoulders to actually see what the view looks like, why wouldn't I? You know. So that's that's been a journey. What's inspired you to share your knowledge? Um, and like, what do you find? the most fulfilling thing about teaching and like, you know, guiding others in photography? It's funny because I, I mean, well, well it, it, I'll give you the backstory and, and then I'll, I'll sort of allude to what it is for me generally. The, the backstory was that, you know, I, I built a very big studio uh, back in the day. You know, I, um, I mean, I'll, I'll get to that if you ask me those kind of questions, but I built a very large studio and my lab, who I was working with at the time, they asked me to um, say, hey, you know, you, we see your numbers coming through the studio. We know how much you print. Like there's no, the numbers don't lie. We'd love for you to educate our fellow photographers. Obviously, unashamedly, they want more business for their lab. And they normally get 20, 30 people, you know, showing up to, the, to their sort of their little educational gigs. And this was back in 2000. So literally 23 years ago. Um, and when I did that seminar, like, it was 200 odd people and that was unheard of. And they were literally like crammed in and everyone wanted to know what this young Greek Australian boy, how did he create this you know, massive studio out of the, out of the back of a charcoal chicken store, <laughs> literally uh, into this massive studio and get these really big numbers and make a name. And back then my, my intention was to just to share. And then when I realized that I could make such a difference in other people's lives, I'd never was worried about, am I creating my own competition? Ironically, my biggest competition that could have actually learned from me, taken my techniques and gone, you know, been better competition for me were probably too embarrassed to attend. Their ego got in the way of attending. Um, so, and then from there, I'm like, well, this is, this is incredible. You know, I didn't never really, I never really got into the business of education in the beginning to monetize it. Like it wasn't like, let me make a business out of this, but because it took so much, so much time from my, my bread and butter business, I'm like, well, I have to, I have to be a professional educator. I have, I have to be a professional public speaker. So I took it very seriously. It was never... It was never like, oh, I want to rule the world and I want to make money from photographers. Like, oh, it was no, I can make a huge difference in other people's lives. And I think that when people want to do it for the world, well, you know, start with your community. And my community is photography. Now, whether that community has grown from my state, my country, and internationally, which it sort of has over the years, it's it's amazing. You know, I, you know, we wake up to emails every day saying, like, hey, you you've made my business more profitable. I see light better. I you know, I'm not intimidated when I do things or I know how to design albums better or I know how to sell better or whatever it may be. So, and that, I mean, and to be honest, um, I'm not validation. Um, I don't chase validation. I don't do it for the pats on the back and the, if anything, like Melissa begs me to listen to the positive feedback that we get. I'm just very, very happy and comfortable to know that I plant seeds and they grow I don't have to look at the forest that I've built or the little garden that I've built. I'm just like, I, I feel like it's a waste of time. Let me focus on what I'm doing that's gotten me that in the first place. Um, 
and that's what's happened. So for me, it's it, it it's just a, a gift that you can give. And I think that if you've been in the industry for a long time, it's not only a, a choice, it sh- almost shouldn't be. Like it's, it's a responsibility. Imagine if a the current crop of surgeons never taught the fellow, the next generation on how to how to be a surgeon. I mean, you know, the, the world will go backwards. And and I think that any industry, let alone photography, which has taken a hit, obviously the pandemic, obviously the introduction with the iPhone, um, everyone's a photographer. You know, we need to mastermind. We need thought leaders. We need to learn from from people who've been there, done that, their successes, their 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 failures, and also. My difference is that I have one degree of separation between a lot of people. I know a lot of incredible photographers. Um, being a Nikon ambassador, I, I'm in the room with 30, 40 incredible like image makers from all genres. I learn from them. I learn from my students in a sense that they will tell me their problems, what their challenges are. Of course, as well as my own um my own challenges that that I face in terms of because I'm still a working photographer you know I I shot three interstate weddings in the last week I did four or five portraits we've done video production so I'm still a working professional I just happen to juggle the education along with it and a few inventions along the way and life is good so you're <laughs> obviously you're widely recognized as one of the most influential wedding photographers um of the 21st century as I said in the intro um, you've, you know, managed to accomplish, uh, you know, an incredible amount of awards and accolades and so on. Um, and, and you have a massively strong reputation in the industry, um, as such, what do you attribute your success to? And what do you think sets you apart from, from other wedding photographers in the business? Look, as far as wedding photography specifically, um, I was very, very, very hungry to do things differently in the start of my career. So, you know, I assisted a photographer for about three and a half years. I carried his bags. I have the first year and a half, I, I just didn't have any pay. It was literally just, I'm going to um, hold the hold the bags of an experienced photographer and, and just learn a formula. Then I worked for him full-time, you know, managing a studio at a very, very young age. Um, so I learned very quickly how to photograph a wedding and make people happy, as in predictably rain, hail, or shine, I can do a good job. And was I amazing back then? No, I was just, I was good. I was consistent. Then to be honest, like to, to amuse myself and just the fact that I'm a very competitive person, not so much for other people, for myself. Like even when I play sport with someone else, oh, you're so competitive. I'm like, I'm just, I'm playing against my, the what I think the best version of me is. Winning or losing is is not the joy for me. It's actually the process. So, so what's happened was that, um, I think a big thing that really changed my career was entering into the WPPI competition. So wedding portrait photography international is a big competition that happens once a year in Vegas. It garnered, I think at its peak, 15 to 20,000 photographers a year. And I entered, uh, an album at 2002, I think it was. Um, and I remember getting like a perfect 100. I ended up winning the grand award and other things. And, for me, it I never really measured myself with many other people, let alone the 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 world, you know. And I thought, and then it, for me, it was strategic. Every single year, I would fight for or every single wedding part of me. I would fight for doing something a little bit different. How many ways can you photograph a groom for God's sake? How many f- ways can you photograph a bride for God's sake? How many ways can you do whatever? And for me, album design was the biggest, I guess. Uh, how do I say vehicle for that? For me, it was 
And again, how do you design an album? So over the years, I would enter these albums and then I would say, well, how do you reinvent it? And then to this day, I've photographed, I've done weddings that look like 50 years old, like a vintage album. I've done completely black and white, completely sepia. I paid homage to David Hockney and did a Polaroid collage album. I've done a 3D wedding with where you had to wear 3D glasses just to view it. Um, I mean, this it, 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 the list goes on and on and on. Like so, every single year, I would I would try something different or enter something different, and because of that, um, and I think there was many like there was a few Australians back then that really influenced the world. Um, there were three or four of us that really, you know, came into the market and introduced the world to a different approach, and then. People will ask, well, why was why were the Australians so good? Were or are so good? And and well, many of us were influencing each other and we got each other to a really, really strong state. So when we introduced our flavor and our brand to the world, now you might say, What what flavor was that? I think it was the, you know, the English. Uh, were very are uh, and probably still, to be honest, to a, to a certain extent, quite photojournalistic and reportage. And you know, you don't get you don't influence the day too much. You don't direct too much. Certainly, there's people that do that. But the Americans were very classic. Everything was posed and 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 lit, and everything was very classic. And and in Australia, we had this sort of posed photojournalism vibe, as in, for me especially, my and to this day, I want my photographs to have the beauty of a pose and the beauty of a well-lit subject as with the candid nature of something spontaneous. So for me, it is, it, it's a glamorous and natural approach because when someone looks at a photo of themselves, the first thing they do is, do I look good? They couldn't care less about the moment. And I don't care who listens to your podcast, who crucifies me over this, but no one gives a shit how special the moment is if they look ugly. Um, you know, yes, there's going to be times where emotion beats perfection, and, and that'll be most of the time. But if you can combine flattery with emotion, that's something that not many people do well. And that's what I um, have tried and still to this day work my ass off to introduce to the world of photography, not just in weddings, because people know me mainly about weddings, but to be honest, I shoot more portraits, fashion, commercial, and performers these days more than weddings as well. Um, but I like to be versatile. So for me, I'm not really intimidated by any genre. Um, I want to say intimidated as in I would never shoot newborn again. I've done newborn, but I, I, I don't do it nowhere near as good as the newborn genre that's been repopularized by the likes of Kelly Brown and probably before her and Gettys and so on. I would never do that again. I would probably never do inanimate objects. I find them very boring, like jewelry or you know, uh, you know, landscapes and stuff like that. I need to photograph a human. So apart from babies or toddlers, once you get over a certain age or the age of twelve or thirteen, and I'm like, I'm not really scared of anything, because weddings teaches you that. On a wedding with time constraints, weather constraints, you photograph everything. Portraits. I mean. Headshots is just this crazy new craze. I'm like, I do 20 headshots of different headshots of the groom before I walk out of his house within half an hour. So I'm like, everyone's like, oh, I'm a headshot photographer and I'm amazing. I'm like, yeah, but it all looks the same, you know, mainly. <laughs> um, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not giving crap about the, the style. I think it's incredible to, to create a living on just headshots, for example, because I'm like, you know, I, I, I've been doing it hard all these years. I've, I've, I've got the mother-in-law 
freaking out. I've got the mother freaking out. The 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 dad's a control freak. The priest is unchristlike. You've got the church lady who is unchristlike. Uh, <laughs> you, know, you know, you've got limited time weather, and you have to do all those things: portraits, wedding, fashion, maternity, boudoir, group shots landscape streetscapes fashion all on a wedding day so doing that has really helped me in in all of the genres that i specialize in now so i've been very thankful for that for that industry you said a number of um really interesting things there i mean the first thing i would say is that you know i've i, I find uh headshots to a degree i find it very safe it's a very safe thing um to do in a way um because well on one hand you know you control the situation and also you know once i think as a headshot photographer, once you got to the point where you can make the subject relax in virtually no time, then, you know, the odds are in your favor, basically. Right. And, and everything is kind of predictable at that point. Um, right. But I've, I've also, I'm not a wedding photographer, but by any stretch of the imagination, but of course I, I have shot some weddings um, and uh, I would never advertise that. But that, <laughs> uh, you know, that really has, I mean... It, I don't think I've ever been that scared in my life. <laughs> you know, I tell you, it's a, it's, and it's really not so much uh, a matter of doubting my own ability as a photographer. It's more like the fear of ruining somebody's like super special day. And which is why I always say, you know, if somebody's, uh, you know, somebody asks me like, what's your ultimate nightmare? I always say like having to shoot a wedding on film. <laughs> you know, somebody goes like, you know, did you get the first kiss? And you go, well, I think so. <laughs> I hope so. I don't know. <laughs> Dude, that I mean, you you are very, very right. I mean, I've got I've got some cameras literally be like in front of me right now. I have the first professional camera that I ever owned, and it's the Mamiya RB67. For those of you who don't know what that is, it means you're young and I'm old. But what that means is it's a medium format camera, which means you're filming on you're photographing on film. You know the the film is, is is very large. It's it's medium format, basically meaning that if you're shooting with a 120 back, what that basically means is you've got 10 shots per roll of film. Now 10 shots, and this is the thing: when you're photographing, you're looking down at your camera, you're focusing, and then you've got the camera on a tripod, and then you're clicking the camera, and you have to look at their eyes. And if you're photographing five or six people you have to scan all their faces and making sure that no one blinked because you're not going to shoot five or six images of that family shot like you would do now digitally. You know, you might only photograph two or three and even then you're probably wasting, it's a dollar every shot. So can you imagine, and also with the with the camera that I used to use, you'd add three actions to take one photo. You'd cock the shutter, put the mirror down and wind the film. Like, and now people are saying, well, my camera only photographs 120 frames in a, in a second. I'm like, dude, <laughs> like, if you can't take a decent shot with a current crop of cameras, any camera system, then you probably suck. Like, <laughs> and I'm like, when I say that, I say that in jest, of course. We all suck when we start, but the, your cameras these days, almost every camera in every camera system and the current crop of cameras, a lot of the hard working is done. The hard work is done for you. That's really it. You can spend most of your time lighting, composing, connecting with your subjects. That's really, you know, what we have left to do. Still, a certain a lot to do, but when you look at how advanced the focus systems are and the exposure systems, the fact that you can see live exposure, you're seeing the built-in, you know, image in your glorified TV set and your viewfinder. I mean, it's 
it's remarkable what what's happened in the in the industry like the difference between when i started and what it is now i'm i'm very so i'm very thankful to be the age that i'm at because and Kirsten, I don't know how old you are, but I'm assuming we're roughly the same age. We've sort of we've witnessed biggest advances of 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 technology in the history of the world in our lifetime. Like I love the fact that I grew up with a record player, then you know, and cassettes, and then CDs, and you know, streaming, and what before internet, after internet, um, you know. Uh, medium format film, 35 mil, black and white, dark room, whatever, and digital technology, scanning film, all the way till now where everything is, AI technology is pretty freaky at the moment too. So like I said, I'm very thankful to have witnessed that and I'm excited to see what I'll witness before I leave this earth uh, in this industry as well and the, and the world for that matter. It's, it's really quite mind-boggling to think that, you know, and I think we are roughly the, the same age actually, um, you know, I remember uh, growing up, my my grandmother was a photographer, and my dad was a photographer, and oh, right. so you know, so I grew up with film cameras around me. And um, not too long ago, but actually, I say not too long ago, nine years ago, on my fortieth birthday, my mom gave me my grandmother's first camera, um, which was an Akfa Isolet um, film camera from nineteen thirty eight. Um, that was like you know, it's a family, era. and it's still fully operational. That thing, it's you know, it's fantastic. Um, but it just made me realize how between that, the late 30s, and when my dad was mainly active in the 80s, let's say, you know, shooting 35 millimeter film, not that much had really changed. You know, yeah, there's color film, you know, and things were a little bit different. It was 35 mil, but, but it's the principle, in principle, was pretty much the same thing. But then if I think, you know, I, I got into it really as a kid, I was... Um, I was mainly into video and I was filming a lot because I wanted to rebel, you know, a little bit. I thought all these stills photographers, screw that. I'm making <laughs> movies, <laughs> you know, and, um, and back then, of course, you know, uh, video cameras, uh, like your consumer video cameras became affordable at the time. Right. You right. know, and, um, and it became relatively easy, you know, and so I, I spent a good, well, a couple of decades just making, making video films basically. Um, but then, you know, to think from, between then, the late 80s, maybe 90s, and now, how dramatically photography has changed in its entirety. Not only the picture-taking stage, but also, you know, the post-production uh, post -production stage and, and everything that we can do to, you know, like, draw our creativity, our creative thought out, out of our brain and, and putting it onto some form of, or into some form of image. It's just it's mind-boggling, really. Yeah, yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Um, yeah, AI freaks me out a little bit, to be honest. Um, and that's a whole other conversation, I'm sure, in a whole other episode of the podcast. But I don't know how photographers, in their right mind, take credit for what's produced, like with punching a few words into a program. Is it fun? You sure? Is it a hobby? Go for it. My personal perspective is how do you consider yourself an artist by punching a few words in? Is there an art to doing that? Sure. Um, but are you sort of, you know, numbing your brain in, in because the creativity, I believe, is a muscle that you can exercise. I feel like you're you're stop exercising by letting these this technology do the work for you and then it becomes less meaningful because even now we i mean we retouch we nip we tuck we take away blemishes whatever i mean like 
that's I'm comfortable with that to a certain extent. To to place things in an image that just weren't there in real life, um, I just don't think it's meaningful. Therefore, it's not as valuable. This is to me personally. I know people differ with this situation, but for me, you know, AI and photography is like lip syncing to a karaoke singer. So you're not even a karaoke singer. You're you're lip syncing someone else, <laughs> sing someone else's song. I'm like, how do you find joy in that? Or at least, or sorry, creative satisfaction probably more so is the better better phrase that that I would use for that. So I haven't uh, dwelled deeply in that sphere, but it, it is a little bit scary. Um, I think there'll always be a um, a market for for meaningful photography. I think that the commercial photography world is screwed from what I can see. Um, uh, it really depends, though, on, on, like I said, on if there's any kind of laws on, you know, what happens to that commercial world and what's real, what's not real and all that kind of stuff. But uh, anyway, I, it's another conversation altogether. So there's my quick thoughts on that one. <laughs> AI is, is a, um, it's a double-sided sword, really. You know, on one hand, there are lots of AI tools that you know make the process of of retouching easier you know and and faster um and you know qualitatively speaking better you know i'm, I'm just thinking like object removal being sure I, being I think it's great yeah i'm totally like i said i here's the thing anyone can do what they want no one's no one's policing anyone if in your business or if you're a hobbyist do whatever you want knock yourself out no one is gonna how do i say the conversations that anyone has on that will be or from at least what i've seen they're very polarizing at the end of the day do what you want do what makes you happy and that's basically it in terms of just purely as a teacher of photography, if you're doing something corrective in Photoshop and AI tools and Firefly, whatever the things they are at the moment, I'm saying go for your life. Can you introduce an element in that image that didn't exist? Sure, of course. But is that going to condition one's creative brain to just stop thinking? What I'm worried about, when I say worried, again, for me, I'll use what I want to use Anyone can use what they want to use and you can be happy about it. Go for your life. Do what you want. From a fellow educator and also being training photographers for such a long time, I feel that the problem with AI, it's going to make us creatively lazy. And I'm not talking about corrective things like taking out an assistant holding a light that's close to the subject because you're doing off-camera flash or removing an unwanted object easier than the past, the past. Um, for me, it is just becoming lazy. And, and an example that I give is that I was working with a photographer that, um, the, you know, award-winning and amazing images, whatever. And then I wanted to see a wedding straight from camera. And I'm like, dude, if I was hiring you to photograph this wedding, I would never hire you again. You're very, very lazy. I, and, and they freaked out looking at me and and I'm like, because you want a brutal, honest feedback. I said, there's so many things that you could fix in camera that you're relying on afterwards. Lighting, uh, posing, composition. Obviously, there's things that you can't fix, but it was just a lazy approach um, because they were too good in Photoshop and post-production. And because I've never really done post-production, I've directed it my whole career, but I've never done it with, with my own fingers, I... 
it made them lazy. And then they woke up and I remember, you know, getting together six months after and he completely changed and did everything he could in camera, which was great. And then there was limited post-production to do as well. So it just depends on what one wants to do. For me, um, I just hope it doesn't make us creatively numb. And it, it, again, it's like a creative muscle where you stop exercising, you you get sore, you need to bend and stretch, and you're just using these tools for because it's fun. And that I understand. But I don't know. I think I think we have to, as, as an industry, we've got to be careful. Embrace it. If if it suits your genre, embrace it. If it makes you money and it's commercial, everything like that. And arguably, you could say that about everything. But don't forget that you can't replace meaningful photographs with an object that didn't exist in the first place, or you know, putting somewhere in a situation that didn't exist. And is there a market for that? Sure, absolutely. Personally, I would rather do something that's that's so quote unquote real. And yes, there are elements of fantasy in the sense of the way you light, the way you shade, the way you compose, the way you do all those things um, change the element of real life. But what is real life? And that's a mind-boggling conversation to have because even in the, you know, when you're talking about, you know, photographing and empowering women, they're like, you know, we love you. You be yourself. You're strong. You're mighty. You're powerful. You know, be yourself. Love yourself. Okay, now come over here and spend two hours with hair and makeup. Well, that's a contradiction. Do you know what I mean? So don't get me wrong. I'm all for self-empowerment and all for making men, women, couples, families look amazing and feel beautiful. But we have to realize there are some um, contradictions in our in our world. Um, and we make creative freedoms for, for some that give us license to do things, and then some we don't. No difference in me watching uh, Matrix, uh, Matrix, the John Wick 2 last night, and, you know, it was raining because every action movie, the, the ground is wet because the reflections, the lighting is all nice, but it was also wet inside a factory. Well, when did it rain inside a factory? Is that real? No, but I enjoyed the colors. <laughs> so, you know. I don't know, man. I'm riffing here a little bit, but it's all good. No, you're absolutely right. But you know, there's there's a there's a couple of things that I mean. One is, you know, one thing I've learned the hard way, um, in, you know, in commercial photography, as in as in like you know it being part of my living, um, is that you know time is money, and very often fixing something in camera actually saves you time. Although you could quite easily fix it in Photoshop afterwards, but you know you spend you know, you'll spend, let's say, half an hour in Photoshop fixing it, but actually it just takes you two minutes to fix that right there on set. Right. In which case, actually, you've just saved yourself 28 minutes in which you could have done something different, you know, created more, you know, work or watch Netflix, whatever it may be. But, you know, that's a, that's an important aspect. Um, and I think, you know, the other thing is, is that, you know, I before I... Became, before I became a, a photographer, in a sense, um, I used to be a musician. I say I used to be, I always say I used to be. It's, oh, that's complete crap as well, because you're always a musician to a degree. Um, <laughs> but I used to be a session musician for 25 years. And the thing that attracted me the most to being in a studio and writing and recording music was that it was simply the fact that I loved the process. It was just, you know, it's, that's the best thing for me. It's, I don't, I don't love looking at a screen programming drum tracks, 
you know, I love sitting there working something out with an actual drummer. You know, I'm a guitarist. So I love sitting there recording things, trying out ideas, you know, making a thing, you know, and then by the end of it, you know, you end up with something that didn't exist, you know, a little while earlier. You just created something out of thin air that just didn't exist. And that's just the beauty of it. And I find, you know, the same thing, you know, people just say to me all the time, like, oh, how come, you know, we used to be a professional musician. How come you're a photographer? Blah, blah, blah. And I always say, well, to me, that's, that's really no difference because it's still the same thing. I still love the process of making an image. You know, it's exactly the same process, creatively speaking, uh, as it is to write a piece of music or to, you know, uh, make it make a short film or whatever it may be, um, you know, paint, paint a picture. Um, but it's the, the process itself is really the, the, the lovely thing about it, you know, the thing that um, that gives you the most satisfaction and the thing that over time actually trains your creative muscle, as you said, you know, and it's my worry is that with AI we're losing that a little bit. You know, it's like, as you say, if we, if we can use three words to create something that, that didn't exist, then like, where's the process gone? Yeah, man. I, I, <laughs> you're talking my language. I, I, I'm very, very process driven. I'm very in the moment kind of a person, no matter what it is in life. And, and people say, oh, Jerry, easy for you. You've won all these awards, done whatever. I'm like, well, no, that process of creating those albums and creating those photographs, I was, if I subjected my happiness based upon the result of what I did, then many times I would be unhappy. Like, that's like going to, you know, recently my hockey team here in Vegas, we won the Stanley Cup final. Now, it was great to win and I loved the experience and I was there at that very game and it was incredible. When you win, it lasted, you know, a split second. And certainly my experience and, you know, whatever I experienced, whatever for, for now, and I, I think about the team and it was an enjoyable thing, but it's all those games during the year that I really, really loved. And some I lost, but I actually loved the process. Creatively, um, do you love it when someone gives you great feedback? Sure, but it's the sheer enjoyment of shooting and the creation process for me that's always been the thing. And that way, you know, it, it it's it's always fruitful. Or hedging my bets that I'm not going to be happy unless I sell ten grand worth of product on this client. Just enjoy the process. Do what you can. Make it a beautiful experience. Make it meaningful. And I'm also entrepreneurial as well, but it's a different hat that I wear at different times. So yeah, you, you're talking my language. I, I I love it. I love the process, and I think people should be obsessed with it. Um, and there's people that do it for a business and they just do it as a business. They go in there, make money. But I find the, 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 the true photographers that I want to say true, the photographers that really, really are artists and entrepreneurs, if I do both in business that, that have longevity and enjoy it, then it's very, very creatively satisfying. If you, you know, you, you appreciate and savor every setting, every minute pose, uh, change that you do, every composition that you change or tweak, uh, every expression that you garner. I mean, that, that's that's where it's at. Exactly. Yeah. The expression thing is the thing that really drives um, drives me, uh, you know, a lot of the time. I, I do a thing called Three Heads in a Row, which is um, like a portrait project um, where I take three images um, of a person and the idea is to tell a story across these three images. They're slightly cartoonish, uh, a little bit, you know, character-esque, whatever the word is. Um you know, a little hyper real, I would say. And um, they're all based on that 
particular uh, subject interacting with an object that means a lot to them. So the idea is they pick three objects that you know mean a lot to them. It could have something to do with their profession, could have something to do with a hobby or just something they love, you know. Um, and so I get them to interact with these objects. And then across these three images, we <clears throat> sort of learn a little bit more about that person. You know, maybe there might be, I don't know, there might be a carpenter or something like that. And uh, they might like to play music and something else that they might be into. And so it's just- I love this, it. It's fantastic. You know, and but the beauty of it is, um, and I've been doing this for, for since before the pandemic. Um, you know, and, uh, I, I get a question. This I get the same question all the time. It's like, oh, what you know, why do you keep doing those? And it's like, well, because I actually love the process. Because when I'm sitting there opposite a person that I potentially don't know, and they've chosen these objects, you know, immediately you have ammunition for a conversation there, you know, and it draws you in, and then getting those people to relax to the point where they're giving me these, like, uh, these extreme facial expressions, it means that they, I need to get them to the point where they drop their guard. You know, they need to be relaxed and they need to trust me, you know, to, to quite a large extent. Um, and I have to get them to the point, not only where they're giving me those, these expressions, but, I, but, you know, a point where they're loving giving me those expressions, if that makes any right. sense. Course, and that's, yeah. And that is the process I love. I love that, that when, you know, people come in, maybe there might be a little bit of trepidation involved, you know, they might be like unsure. I mean, of course, they've seen, you know, it's previous work and whatever, but no. Um, but I've never really been in that sort of situation themselves. And, uh, you know, and by the end of it, they've had a whale of a time. They've loved, you know, they've loved the process and they've, they've had a good time, a good two hours, you know, whatever. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and you see them walk away happy and the end result reflects that, you know, the fun and, and all the, you know, the good times that went into making these images. That's really, that's the, that's the motivator there completely for me. Awesome, man. That's fantastic. I love it. I love it. Great, great, great uh, initiative. Very cool. What would be your sort of essential tips, I would say, to, um, you know, to photographers starting out in the wedding industry now, you know, now that we have you know, AI and, and all the rest of it. Um, what, what, sort of, what, what kind of, let's say, top three essential tips would you give people starting out in the industry now? I would focus on the business more than I would the photography, because at the end of the day, if you're starting a wedding business, that means you're capable of producing a job, rain, hail, or shine in a consistent manner. doesn't have to be incredible or groundbreaking. just needs to be consistent. Um, and to be consistent, you need repetition, experience, and practice. And um, that you can't underestimate that. I, I remember meeting a photographer and said, Jerry, I've been photographing for weddings for three years. I'm not getting any better. And I said, well, how many weddings have you shot? He said, 21. And I said, you've been photographing for three weeks. He says, what do you mean? It's three years. I said, no, you've purely photographically been photographing for three weeks. And I go, do you practice on a non-paying gig? And he says, what do you mean practice? You know, I've got a day job. I'm like, well, well, I don't care whether you've got a day job or not. Do you practice your craft? He goes, well, you know, what I'm shooting. I said, well, if Djokovic practiced tennis only at a Grand Slam event, would he have won 23 Grand Slams at the moment? Probably not. Almost certainly not. Like professional athletes who are at the top of their game practice every day or at least work out or do something for their business. So. I think too many people judge what they're going to charge based upon what they're good at, as in I'll only charge X amount when I feel I'm good enough. 
But because you get incrementally better photographically, you'll never see a massive change. So then your confidence level will never really reach what you want to charge, depending on your mindset. So, you know, I say to people, you know, consider yourself a business person in photography rather than a photographer in business. And also, like, ask yourself the question, are you working on your business or in your business? It's two very different things. You know, in your business, that's why I've never done my own Photoshop. Why would I do something that anyone can do? What I need, I can do is photograph the way I do. I can relate to people the way I do. I sell the way I do. So there's things that I only do. And if I can get someone to do any like things that anyone can do, I'm going to pass that up. I'm not worried about what it costs me because the hours now that I have free to go and get the, the better work or maximize my sales or redo my branding, marketing, or working on vendor relationships will be so much more fruitful. So there's 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 many different ways that I can structure that answer because it depends on if you're serious about business or if you're serious about weddings. Probably my people ask me, what regret do I have? And I have very few in my career. The only regret that I have is I wish I was exposed to more photographers early in my career, as in I had the ability to hold their camera bags. Or there's workshops like I do, my, my ultimate experience that I do for my for, for photographers is a five-day workshop. I, I don't think there's anyone in the world that does a five-day workshop, a single person all day, every day, and can cover weddings and portraits, pretty much a university degree in one week. I can't think of anyone else. And I humbly say that. I'm just, I'm just more proud of it than anything. And I say, if it's not me, someone else, but the shortcut to success, if you read any business book in the world... It will say, find a mentor, find someone that's traveled down the road before you and learn from them. And uh, because you just have a shortcut, you fast track your success by knowing what to do, what not to do, understanding the complexities and intricacies of things that they wouldn't even thought of. What's your administrative workflow? What's your production workflow? What happens if you do get 20 inquiries this week? Could you handle it? Do you have a price list that's conducive of making money? Is it are you giving too much away? Are you basing your prices on what anyone else is doing? And and so on and so forth. So repetition, experience, and practice will always be your best teacher. And then your business, you just have to treat it like a business. You, you, you know, it's not that you're creative and you can't, you know, be both. I am very left and right brained. I just learn to switch off and on depending on what I need at the time. Um, and yeah, that's I mean, that's there's a lot more to it than that, but that's the the quick answer, even though it was long. <laughs> so w within that, what do you think are the, so the most commonly made mistakes that you see uh, wedding photographers make? Lack of confidence is the biggest one. And that is result of lack of repetition, experience and practice. So they go in not really knowing what to do or, or they let a, a coordinator dictate the whole day. They don't sort of be assertive enough to establish the rules of engagement as in this is if like I'll, I'll often say if I have any chance of not only meeting your expectations but exceeding them then I need this time I'm not I'm like it's like a going to a, a surgeon for an operation you're not gonna you know you're not gonna go there and they, oh you need to get this mole removed um and he'll say it'll take two hours and this recovery whatever and you say no half an hour like we're professionals. We need to tell clients, this is exactly what we need to produce what you expect. Therefore, you need to be ready at this time before the ceremony and so on and so forth. So over the years, you sort of work out 
when most things go wrong, it's usually our fault as photographers. So, so where they go wrong is lack of confidence, obviously lack of experience and repetitionic practice, not treating a business like a business. And most people will say, I want to be a professional photographer, so I'll start my own business. And that's the biggest mistake you've made because you're not treating it like a business. You're just floundering. You're like, let me, you know, a friend of mine has asked me to do their wedding. All right, I'll, I think 500 bucks is good enough. Let me just charge that or let me do nothing. And then you sort of just, you know, every so often you'll chip away at something that you think you should do or people are, are posting a photograph a day or two days on, on Instagram and then thinking that that's marketing. Um, there are so many mistakes that people make. It's just being that there's no proactivity. Everyone wastes time on social media. Like if people looked at the time they spent on social media and they said, rather than those five hours per day on social media that make me feel intimidated, make me feel like I'm not good enough, looking at everyone's best work, best photo, best meal, best holiday, judging yourself to somebody else, rather than wasting that time and making it literally fruitful, get those, spend half an hour on social media, see what your friends are up to, your family, whatever, just, you know, whatever. Uh, and then spend four hours uh, that you used to do of that practicing and working on your marketing, working on your reinvention, working on your branding, your website, your, you know, your your offerings and, and so on and so forth. So, you know, there, there's so many things to it, but that's the the brief, again, but long answer. <laughs> I think you, you've hit the nail on the head there. Um, it's, I think it's it's probably true to say that in creative fields like photography, like music, for example, and music is actually a very, very good parallel to that. You know, the vast majority of musicians come at being a musician from 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 a creative angle. You know, um, but that doesn't make them in any way, shape, or form experienced in the art of turning the craft into a business, which is why, right. which is why you know, the vast majority of, of musicians are probably, you know, living a fairly, <laughs> fairly breathless life. I mean, they're broke. Yeah. I mean, their their biggest genius is their biggest curse. Is there, and, and it's the same with us because we're all creatives. The, your biggest genius will always be your biggest flaw. What makes people or photography great uh, is your empathy and your sensitivity. You're a sensitive artist. You love people. You photograph them. Therefore, you just want to give everything away. Whereas that's so much disrespect for them your clients and for us. And let me explain that. For me, I love my family. I love my wife. I love my 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 babies. So I'm like, well, what how much will you pay me to take my attention away from my family? That's that's like the first and foremost question I ask myself. What will buy my attention to you? Because it's not going to be on my family if it's if it's on you. And it and it doesn't mean if this job takes half an hour, you're not paying for the half an hour. You're paying for the 30 years it took me to learn what I'm going to do for you in half an hour. Um, you know, so the, the the fact is that you know, if you love what you do, and there's plenty of people out there that will take advantage of it. I know so many people who photograph celebrities, and they make almost zero money sometimes for the pure just. Hey, this is the you know you should be privileged to photograph so and so's wedding or so and so shoot or the red carpet and they make nothing, and I'm like, who do you love more, a stranger that you watch in movies or your wife or your husband that's begging for your attention, you know? So it's it's a tough one. We've got to we've got to balance what makes us great, but it, it can also be the death of us, you know. 
so it's, it's quite interesting. Um, we talked about, um, you know, managing your time, um, you know, and staying organized during a wedding and, and, you know, being assertive and giving instructions. Um, what's your general approach to that? Well, firstly, the, the pricing structures usually kill kill that thought process. So let me explain. Most Americans, especially when I came into this market, it's very typical to charge for a four-hour, six-hour, eight-hour coverage, as I believe it's in the UK and, and, and Europe. Um, the problem with that is if if someone sees a three, four, five, six, seven-hour coverage on your price list, sometimes they'll go for the middle one. It could be six hours. Then they look at what they want into the reception and work backwards. In other words, I want you there in the reception until the father-daughter dance and the mother-son dance. And before that, a speeches and cake, and let's work backwards. And now the ceremony's at a certain time. And I have half an hour to photograph you as a bride. So now there's no groom's coverage, assuming we're photographing a heterosexual couple, no groom's coverage. We've got barely some photographs of the bride, maybe one photograph of the bridesmaids, maybe one group shot. And then we're quickly struggling to get to the ceremony. We barely have shots before it gets dark, if we're shooting in winter, for family shots. And all of a sudden, we're we're struggling again. So, so what I'm getting at is that that you are limiting yourself. You say, "Well, my time is worth money, therefore I should be, you know, offering an hourly rate." And now, I'm, my suggestion is, if you shoot weddings, do three collections. One will give you both homes or both coverages. So, groom, groom, bride, bride, bridegroom, depending on if it's same sex or hetero. Um, both coverages, um, ceremony, location, portrait, time. And then an hour into the reception. Second collection gives them all of that plus till 10 p.m. of the reception or end of formalities, whichever's earlier. Third collection will give them till 11:30. So now my neighbor, who's a photographer, offers a six-hour coverage as a minimum. I offer my minimum could be 10 hours. I could start at 10 a.m. with the grooms, finish at 12 or 11:30. I would photograph the bride for two hours. There's 1:30. We do a reveal with the bride and groom at two o'clock. We photograph them for two hours along with the bridal party, get married at four, finish at five, congratulations, big group shots at 5.30, do other family shots, cocktail hour, reception, and my coverage is well-rounded, is a full story. So not only do I look better than other photographers because my minimum coverage is a lot more than your minimum, I tell a better story, which means my album will be bigger and I make up the money that way way, way more than anybody else, at least for those who are just doing the hourly rate. So it's almost like you want the you want the quick win, but I'm after the long-term win and a good story. But I've never photographed a wedding without the group's coverage, ever. Like it just, I mean, why is the groom less important? Certainly the bride has a dress and she's probably more invested visually and the, from, the, from the spectacle perspective because you've got to, I mean, how many ways can you do a suit? Like, you know, the dress, a lot of girls dream about their wedding guys and are not like that, generally speaking. They might be about, you know, they the, the thought of getting married or whatever, but the wedding itself is usually the bride's, you know, and or the parents' way of just celebrating a different thing or whatever, the spectacle. But yeah, that's the, but that's a common mistake. They just, you just don't give yourself enough time to create and tell a story. It's interesting you say that because um, obviously in the world of hatcher photography, it's not too dissimilar whereby, you know, the vast majority of hatcher photographers you'll see will sell packages. You know, there'll be like the 20 minute session and then the one hour session and then the three hour session or whatever. 
And uh, these packages contain very definitive products, you know, so you'll have the 20 minute session will have one headshot, you know, one fully retouched headshot, whatever. And the, the one hour session will have come, will come with three fully retouched headshots and whatever. And, you know, the, the problem with that is, um, it is something I've learned over time is that, that you're limiting your potential right there at the gate because you're setting the expectation right from the beginning. And there's virtually almost zero chance of any upsell or, or of any, you know, any way of, of expanding that experience for the client because they're already coming in with the thought in their head that, you know, well, they've paid for three hedges and that's it, you know, um, whilst what I found is since I've changed my business model completely a couple of years ago, whereby I basically don't set any limits whatsoever. There's no time limit on a session. So I could, I could be shooting for five hours if that's, if, if that's what it takes. But it enables me to go through lots of different, uh, you know, setups, uh, create lots of different um, different shots, different backgrounds, and all the rest of it. Um, and and also because I end up actually shooting more, I'm, I'm going to get to the point where the client is more relaxed. You know, we'll get to the good stuff basically. And what happens is two things. First of all, the quality of the work's better. You know, the end results better. The clients are more uh, satisfied. But also purely from a business perspective, it enables me to upsell so many more shots because the reality is if I do five setups, you know, and even if they, you know, even if we will it down to the, the hero shot for each setup, I'm still selling five shots rather than three. Right. And, and yeah. there's no limit. If I, if I mentioned do eight setups, I'm, you know, so, so since I've changed my business model to, um, basically charging a relatively high session fee plus a per photo fee on top of that, um, it's actually enabled me to to turn each uh, each shoot into a more lucrative sale, as it were, you know. Right. And and because and what happens is because all of that's clear from the beginning. There's no expectation set in, like you know, from the client's perspective, they're not having an expectation, thinking like, oh, I'm going to run out with, you know, five five images is is what it's going to be. Um, this it's really an open it's an open thing and. And even I find that even if they come in with a certain idea of what their budget may be, uh, they very often find that they can stretch that a little bit because they just love the shot so much. You know, so for, purely from a business perspective, it's actually meant that um, I've been able to monetize that time in a way more effectively than than I was able to when I followed this, you know, old-fashioned and inverted commas um, package model. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. That's fantastic. Very cool. Very cool. We were talking about, or you were talking about your your style earlier, which I found super interesting. You know, the the idea of kind of combining that classic, you know, uh, wedding imagery with um, with a more relaxed, kind of candid sort of approach. What sort of tips would you give uh, somebody to to really handle the pressure when it comes to uh, you know working a wedding and achieving that sort of relaxed, candid approach? Well, it's I mean, how do you eat an, an elephant? one bite at a time, right? Like yeah. I think that people see the the overall complexity of a wedding or any shoot for that matter, because what I'm talking about here applies to anything to do with people, whether it's portrait, whether it's, uh, you know, boudoir or whatever, like it's, it's very similar. Um, and that is, you know, I call it five steps to a great photograph. There's always five steps for me. When I started teaching, I'm like, well, what do I do consistently all the time? And I look for light first. 
I look for the direction of light, the iridescence, the the lighting that will tell a story, something cool. And if it's on a wedding, it's going to be circumstantial. It's going to be what's there. It's going to be what what I can create. I think at the start of my career, I would always go for a good location. Like I'd, I'd see a beautiful tree. I'd see a beautiful wall, uh, whatever it may be. Now I'm looking for pockets of light that are going to tell my story. So I look for light first. Then I look for location. What's my background? And now I'm not so... I don't care about as much. I don't care about the landmarks. I don't care about anything that visually amazing. And don't get me wrong. If I'm going to shoot at the Taj Mahal, I'll shoot the Taj Mahal. If I'm shooting at a a great place, sure. And obviously, a location will often attract you first. But either if it it attracts you first, you've got to find the good light or create the good light in that area. So light number one, location number two. Then I pose people unashamedly. I have no problem in posing people. I think it's too demonized in our industry. It's demonized in the public, where ironically, every photograph that people take of themselves is posed. So even to be honest, the more I think about it, posing is not as demonized as it used to be, because even people who do selfies on iPhones have learned their angles, learned the direction of light. I mean, they're not as unsophisticated as they used to be. Um, And then number four is technique, my camera, my settings, my composition, my lens choice. And then number five is emotion. And emotion doesn't mean have to be an extreme. It doesn't mean I have to make them laugh or cry. It could mean just the subtle direction or that last little finessing of a pose because the way you position a hand can be emotional. The way you direct eyes, chin, angle of the face, the body, the shoulders, the bust, the hips, the legs, all of that can communicate something. So I just do it five steps at a time. I don't really... I don't freak out. And once I do that image, if it's for an album or a portrait or wall art for a portrait, then I say, what's going to go with this? In other words, if I'm shooting for a wedding album, don't think about the album until I take that first shot of that new scene. Now I say, what will go with it? If it's a portrait of a bride close up, I can just change my angle and similar lighting and boom, I've got got another shot. What I used to do is get obsessed with the beauty of the bride, take 50 shots in one spread. And I'm like, well, that's just silly. Why am I wasting my time? If I'm taking two shots will be ending up in the album, take five shots, be done, move the next spread, make her look different, go outside, use the sun, have her laughing, have her softer, have the veil over, have her giggling with a champagne, have her with a father, whatever it may be. And then you're not only photographing for meaningfulness, you're photographing purposefully also to sell those afterwards. So it's a system. Light location, pose, technique, emotion. And anyone who's come to my five-day workshop, I will drum that into them like it's no tomorrow and prove it by photographing in, in front and people and stuff. So, yeah. Do you create a shot list beforehand and do you, or, or do you literally um, just let the, you know, the creative juices flow there in the moment? No, no, there's, there's no written out shot list per se, although... I had just learned that muscle memory from the beginning. So like you just know what you have to get. And any photographer that will tell you that their photography is completely unique and every shot or every part of the the day is totally unique to the couple, they're just telling you lies. Like it is a very formulaic approach. It could be with a different people. It could be different locations. But there are some shots that you just, well, some, there are many, many shots of the percentage of shots you deliver to a client that are very much the same. 
There's going to be a bride full length, three-quarter, close-up, from behind. There'll be the bride with each bridesmaid, each um, all of the bridesmaids, bride with mum, dad, mum and dad, mum and dad siblings, mum, dad, siblings, spouses and kids. Uh, walking out of the house, coming, you know, coming into the ceremony, church, garden, wherever they're doing it. So what I'm saying is there are very formulaic things that just have to be done. What I do is do what I have to do to do what I want to do. Now, what does that mean? I know these are formulaic. doesn't mean I have to shoot them exactly the same way, but ultimately I'm not going to create shafts of light and dramatic composition for these kinds of bread and butter shots because they and or the parents are not going to appreciate them. When I've done those, what I call do or die shots, for example, let's say the couple get married and I've got the bridal party in front of me. So I've got the bride and groom and the bridal party. I call them seven do or die shots, a full length of the bride and the groom, close up of the bride and the groom, bride on her own, groom on his own, girls on their own, groom, uh, bridesmaids on their own, and then full bridal party. That's seven do or die. Now, obviously I'm suggesting a heterosexual couple if it's a same sex wedding you understand the you know the obvious uh, inclusions that we do for that but that's what i'm getting at so once i do that then i say let me do a different full length of the bride and groom a different close up a different bride a different groom a different girls a different guys a different bridal party and that's the thing is that let if that'll become if you practice and repeat it enough that'll be an ingrained like list of shots that you just have to do and you'll never miss one. When you say never miss one, if it's up to you, there's times where I've missed a kiss because it just happened too quickly. There's times where they've added a tradition that I didn't know about, that didn't forewarn me about, even though I asked them. At the end of the day, if it moves, shoot it. If you don't understand it, shoot it. And, you know, you 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 grow with it. And yeah, you know, it's uh, it's it's tough. And and even now, I, I just turned 50. I did, uh, like I said, I did three weddings back-to-back recently, and they all had different, you know, levels of complexity, but they were high-pressure weddings. Um, and sometimes I say to myself, after 30 years of shooting, if someone less experienced was at this wedding right now, I, I don't know what they would do. I'm like, I wouldn't say I'm struggling, but I'm working my ass off to get a decent story. And I think that the difference is that I think that your tolerance for what knowing that what could have been is higher. As you work more and as you've been in the industry for longer, your sophistication level rises, which means that it doesn't matter what the couple knows and wants and expects, you know that this could have been done better with more time or, you know, this happened, therefore I couldn't do this. I'm just saying is that my tolerance for that is I I don't I I still consider everything my fault. Doesn't matter whether it is. If I can make up for your shortcoming because you weren't ready on time or some situation was bad, I just have to work my ass off. And there's most of those weddings I barely sat down for 2 minutes for the whole day. Even though there were gaps where I could, I said, well, what else can I do now? I could take more detail shots. I could go into the bridal room and have them mingling with the bridal party. I could do a fun off-camera flash detail shot that I hadn't tried before or something like that. So no minute goes wasted. And and to this day, I'm hungry for that point of difference. So what I recommend to photographers, especially who shoot weddings, if it's sort of like you've done it for a while and it's a bit boring for you now, it's not challenging, and you're in that sort of creative rut, give yourself a challenge. Every single time you photograph, again, assuming a hetero couple, 
every time you photograph a groom's coverage, do one shot that's different, a different lighting situation, a different pose, a different crop, just one shot different. Same at the bride, same at the ceremony, same on location, same on reception. So if you did 20 weddings a year and you did five shots that are different, there's a hundred shots a year that are different. If you don't succeed half the time, it's 50 shots that you're adding to your arsenal. When I was younger and I popularized things and did things that no one had else had done before, that's the way I got known very quickly. I've never, you know, backlit rain shots. No one did them. I popularized them. The, the reveal with the father, I popularized that. There's many other things that I did. Um, and, and now ironically, some of these shots that I've done and popularized have been done so much around the world that I don't like to do them because I feel like they've lost their flavor. (laughs) You know what I mean? So, but it's good because it forces me to say, all right, well, how else can I do a shot? How else can I pose a bride and the groom? Um, and it's, it's fun. It's a challenge. It's still, it's still challenging for me in many ways. It's still fun for me. So that's great. What I always wonder is like with, you know, with so many iconic images, like, you know, looking at your, um, you know, your portfolio of, of wedding images. I mean, there's so many really iconic images there. Um, how do you handle like client expectations when a client comes to you and goes like, well, I, I want that, or I want, you know, <laughs> how do you handle that? You know what? That, that's a, that's a great question. Um, just one of these recent weddings, a bride, uh, very sensitive bride. When I say sensitive, not in a, how do I say sensitive? Just a, a wilting flower, very just very soft and just, you know, everything was victimized. Like, I don't know, there was some gorgeous bride, one of the most beautiful, physically attractive brides that I've ever photographed, but just had this sensibility about her. And then she sent me 20, 30 shots, you know, um, that she wanted me to do. And I just said, first of all, like, I appreciate you giving me some inspiration photographs. So now I'm qualifying them as inspiration photographs, not photographs that I have to copy. But many of them were mine, ironically. And I just said, there's a unique combination of elements that go into these photographs. It is that girl with that dress at that time, at that location, with that light. I can't emulate that on your day unless I have those same elements, which, of course, the main element is you. You're different. So if you don't mind, I'm going to use these as in, uh, inspiration photographs that where I can, I'll, I'll, I'll emulate. And if I see a shot that I feel I can emulate that uh, with another location that carries the, carries the spirit of what you want me to do, I will certainly do that. Now, this is no joke. I got those photographs. We put them on Melissa, my wife's iPhone. And I said, damn it, I'm going to give myself a challenge that even though that what she's asking me that I already qualified was unrealistic in my nicest possible way, I'm going to do my best to tick every little box. Like I want every single shot, even as obscure as it was to that location, I'm going to try to do. And I think I did 95% of them. So now I know that even though her expectations were very high, before she even gave me those photographs, I know that she's, she's going to be very, very happy because she can show me where's that shot that I showed you that I really like. Well, there's that one. Well, where's that one? There's this one. So I found enough elements on that wedding with her sensibility to achieve something in that family of, of, of photographs that she showed me. So at the end of the day, I have knocked back weddings and said, there is no way that I could possibly achieve the hundred best photographs that you found on the internet of every photographer and achieve it on your day. 
the best that I could do is the best that I can do under the circumstances and using these photographs as inspiration. But if I, if that is not good enough for you, I'm not in the habit of only meeting your expectations but exceeding them. Therefore, I don't think we're a good fit. And I'll decline the wedding, you know? Fantastic. Um, yeah. Okay, so I've got one final question for you. Just, just generally, um, you know, aimed at, um, you know, at, at people um, in in the wedding industry or looking at the wedding industry um, at the moment where I feel like I look at wedding photographers or at, at the wedding photography industry it's sort of almost like as an outsider because I don't really shoot weddings. So I have, like I said, I have shot a handful of weddings, um, so not very many at all. And I've, you know, uh, I found, <laughs> found them. I love them. Actually, I used to play lots of weddings when I was a musician. Um, so I, I actually like weddings per se, but, uh, you know, I found photographing them very stressful. That's lack of experience and not having had any practice, no doubt. Um, but I find that, um, just looking at it from the outside, I, I find that there's, there's a very definitive trends where all of a sudden everything looks like that. And then it's, it looks, you know, it sort of moves on and then there's a new sort of fashion craze that, that's going on. What would be your advice to anybody um, in the industry wanting to sort of um, stand out a little bit and do things differently? What's what would be your advice be? Yeah, that that's a that's an open ended question. That, so the problem is that I mean, look, think of the hipster craze that happened, right? Which certainly affect our industry. That craze was born about by non conforming and being different. Ironically everyone started to look the same. In, in terms of the fashion, it was a uniform, no different than the rock culture. You have your long hair, you have your jacket, you mostly wear black, you might wear a printed t-shirt of an old vintage band, you wear boots, you wear a chain on your belt. There's like, there's just certain things that, that become synonymous with that culture. Cowboys, you're not going to see a cowboy dressed you know, in a, in, in, in a Beverly Hills Rodeo Drive, you know, vibe. It's not going to happen. Um, so there's certain things that are popularized right now. And probably for the last couple of years in the wedding industry, you often hear light and airy. And this has also got to do with the, um, the coordinators. We'd like light and airy. So what happens is when thought leaders in any industry, in any genre, popularize a way of thinking, you often adopt it as your own. So brides don't know what they want, but they see light and airy everywhere. They think, well, I just should be light and airy. Now, don't get me wrong. Is it popular for a reason? Sure. It's light and airy. It's joyful. It's playful, whatever. As a photographer, there's no detail in highlights. Everything's washed out. And also, everything starts looking the same. For me, it really depends on what your approach is. If you want a successful business and your area is light and airy and you have to conform or you want to conform... And that's the, that's the style and there's a certain price point that everyone's at. Go for your life. You can do that. There's plenty of businesses that offer a repeatable product at a, you know, and a mediocre product. I'm, and I'm not saying every, I'm not saying light and air is mediocre. I'm saying your work could be pretty basic. It's decent. It's not incredible, but you can, if you're a great business person, you can create a successful business on a mediocre product that's repeatable. Now, if you add the extra layer of if it's light and airy and you're consistent and you're pretty good, you'll make a great living. It's a very popular style. Personally, 
I will not conform at this point in my career. Do I shoot light and airy if the couple are light and airy? Yes. So for me, it has to be a meaningful approach. I'm not going to shoot everyone the same. If you're soft, sweet couple and very intimate, I'm going to shoot you soft and sweet and very intimate. If you're loud and obnoxious and crazy, I'm going to shoot you like that. So no different than my portraits. Even though, like, that's the thing is that we often get seduced by people saying, your Instagram feed has to be all the same. Well, if you look at my Instagram feed, it goes from boudoir to wedding to portrait to fashion to high end to whatever. Like that's, I'm not going to conform just to do one style. If I only focused on weddings and that pandemic hit, my industry would have been decimated, which it was. So I don't believe you should only do one genre. You should at least do two or three, I think, to be out for the ability to survive. So my advice is conform, but accept the consequences that it's going to be a repeatable product that's not that creative after a while, and it's probably not going to be as meaningful. It'll probably sell, but that trend will probably come and go. Um, I think good, classic, meaningful, and thoughtful approach to photography will always have a business and will always have longevity. So like I said, you can look at my Instagram feed now. You will see light and airy, you will see dramatic, you will see fun, you will see emotional, high impact, uh, iconic stuff, whatever. Like, But again, I, I'll just run my own race. I think if I had to be pigeonholed into one style, look, if I had to survive, I'll do anything to feed my family at the end of the day. But if if that meant it wasn't satisfying for me, I just wouldn't do it. I'd probably do that as a side hustle, as in if I had to do a genre that was basic and it paid my bills, but I had another creative outlet, maybe. So it just depends on everyone's personal situation. Jerry, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much. Um, a, a complete and utter treasure trove of super awesome information there. Thank you so much. Thank you, mate. It's been a great, a great connecting and great sharing some information. Okay, folks, that's all for today. There you have it. Some incredible insights from a true legend. But before we go... Let me just recommend another episode that I think you'll like. Check out episode 79 with Joe McNally, where we're discussing the life of another legend and his approach to photography, and I'm sure you'll love it. And for those of you who are listening to the audio version of this podcast, did you know that there's a fully-fledged video version over on YouTube with plenty of examples of our guest photography in full Technicolor? All you have to do is go over to YouTube, search for Camera Shake Podcast, and you'll be able to watch all past episodes on there. And if you are on YouTube already, get in touch and leave a comment. And remember to hit that like button, ring the bell and share with your friends. You can help us reach a greater audience all over the world. Once again, thank you for listening and watching. And I'll see you again next Thursday.